Chapter Ten of Book One of Les Misérables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kai Lu. Les Misérables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book First, Waterloo, Chapter Ten. The Plateau of Mont Saint Jean. Sixty cannons and the thirteen squares darted lightning point blank on the cuirassiers. The intrepid General Delors made the military salute to the English battery. The whole of the flying artillery of the English had re-entered the squares at a gallop. The cuirassiers had not had even the time for a halt. The disaster of the hollow road had decimated, but not discouraged them. They belonged to that class of men who, when diminished in number, increase in courage. Wathier's column alone had suffered in the disaster. Delors' column, which Ney had deflected to the left as though he had a presentiment of an ambush, had arrived whole. The cuirassiers hurled themselves on the English squares. At full speed, with bridles loose, swords in their teeth, pistols in fist, such was the attack. There are moments in battles in which the soul hardens the man until the soldier is changed into a statue, and when all this flesh turns into granite. The English battalions, desperately assaulted, did not stir. Then it was terrible. All the faces of the English squares were attacked at once. A frenzied whirl enveloped them. That cold infantry remained impassive. The first rank knelt and received the cuirassiers on their bayonets. The second ranks shot them down. Behind the second rank, the cannoneers charged their guns. The front of the square parted, permitted the passage of an eruption of grape shot, and closed again. The cuirassiers replied by crushing them. Their great horses reared, strode across the ranks, leaped over the bayonets, and fell, gigantic, in the midst of these four living wells. The cannonballs plowed furrows in these cuirassiers. The cuirassiers made breaches in the squares. Files of men disappeared, ground to dust under the horses. The bayonets plunged into the bellies of these centaurs, hence a hideousness of wounds which has probably never been seen anywhere else. The squares, wasted by this mad cavalry, closed up their ranks without flinching. Inexhaustible in the matter of grapeshot, they created explosions in their assailants' midst. The form of this combat was monstrous. These squares were no longer battalions, they were craters. Those cuirassiers were no longer cavalry, they were a tempest. Each square was a volcano attacked by a cloud, lava contended with lightning. The square on the extreme right, the most exposed of all, being in the air, was almost annihilated at the very first shock. It was formed of a 75th Regiment of Highlanders. The bagpipe player in the center dropped his melancholy eyes, filled with the reflections of the forests and the lakes, in profound inattention, while men were being exterminated around him, and seated on a drum, with his pibroch under his arm, played the highland airs. These Scotchmen died thinking of Ben Lothian, as did the Greeks recalling Argus. The sword of a cuirassier, which hewed down the bagpipes and the arm which bore it, put an end to the song by killing the singer. The cuirassiers, relatively few in number, and still further diminished by the catastrophe of the ravine, had almost the whole English army against them. 
but they multiplied themselves so that each man of them was equal to ten. Nevertheless, some Hanoverian battalions yielded. Wellington perceived it, and thought of his cavalry. Had Napoleon at that same moment thought of his infantry, he would have won the battle. This forgetfulness was his great and fatal mistake. All at once the cuirassiers, who had been the assailants, found themselves assailed. The English cavalry was at their back. Before them two squares, behind them Somerset. Somerset meant fourteen hundred dragoons of the guard. On the right, Somerset had Dornberg with the German light horse, and on his left, Trip with the Belgian carabineers. The cuirassiers attacked on the flank and in front, before and in the rear, by infantry and cavalry, had to face all sides. What mattered it to them? They were a whirlwind. Their valor was something indescribable. In addition to this, they had behind them the battery, which was still thundering. It was necessary that it should be so, or they could never have been wounded in the back. One of their cuirasses, pierced on the shoulder by a ball from a Biscayan, is in the collection of the Waterloo Museum. For such Frenchmen, nothing less than such Englishmen was needed. It was no longer a hand-to-hand -hand conflict. It was a shadow, a fury, a dizzy transport of souls and courage, a hurricane of lightning swords. In an instant, the fourteen hundred dragoon guards numbered only eight hundred. Fuller, their lieutenant-colonel, fell dead. Ney rushed up with the lancers and Lefavre Denouet's light horse. The plateau of Mont-Saint-Jean was captured, recaptured, captured again. The cuirassiers quitted the cavalry to return to the infantry, or, to put it more exactly, the whole of that formidable rout collared each other without releasing the other. The squares still held firm. There were a dozen assaults. Ney had four horses killed under him. Half the cuirassiers remained on the plateau. This conflict lasted two hours. The English army was profoundly shaken. There is no doubt that, had they not been enfeebled in their first shock by the disaster of the hollow road, the cuirassiers would have overwhelmed the center and decided the victory. This extraordinary cavalry petrified Clinton, who had seen Talavera and Badajoz. Wellington, three-quarters vanquished, admired heroically. He said in an undertone, Sublime. The cuirassiers annihilated seven squares out of thirteen, took or spiked sixty pieces of ordnance, and captured from the English regiments six flags, which three cuirassiers and three chasseurs of the guard bore to the emperor in front of the farm of La Belle Alliance. Wellington's situation had grown worse. This strange battle was like a duel between two raging wounded men, each of whom, still fighting and still resisting, is expending all his blood. Which of the two will be the first to fall? The conflict on the plateau continued. What had become of the cuirassiers? No one could have told. One thing is certain, that on the day after the battle, a cuirassier and his horse were found dead among the woodwork of the scales for vehicles at Mont-Saint-Jean, at the very point where the four roads from Nivet, Genappe, La Houpe, and Brussels meet and intersect each other. This horseman had pierced the English lines. One of the men who picked up the body still lives at Mont-Saint-Jean. His name is De Hayes. He was eighteen years old at the time. Wellington felt that he was yielding. The crisis was at hand. The cuirassiers had not succeeded, since the center was not broken through. As everyone was in possession of the plateau, no one held it, 
and in fact it remained, to a great extent, with the English. Wellington held the village and the culminating plain, nay had only the crest and the slope. They seemed rooted in that fatal soil on both sides. But the weakening of the English seemed irremediable. The bleeding of that army was horrible. Kempt, on the left wing, demanded reinforcements. There are none, replied Wellington. He must let himself be killed. Almost at that same moment, a singular coincidence which paints the exhaustion of the two armies, Ney demanded infantry from Napoleon, and Napoleon exclaimed, Infantry? Where does he expect me to get it? Does he think I can make it? Nevertheless, the English army was in the worst case of the two. The furious onsets of those great squadrons, with crisses of iron and breasts of steel, had ground the infantry to nothing. A few men clustered round a flag marked the post of regiment. Such and such a battalion was commanded only by a captain or a lieutenant. Alton's division, already so roughly handled at La Haison, was almost destroyed. The intrepid Belgians of Van Cluze's brigade screwed the rye fields all along the Nive road. Hardly anything was left of those Dutch grenadiers who, intermingled with Spaniards in our ranks in 1811, fought against Wellington, and who, in 1815, rallied to the English standard, fought against Napoleon. The loss in officers was considerable. Lord Uxbridge, who had his leg buried on the following day, had his knee shattered. If, on the French side, in that tussle of the cuirassiers, Delors, Le Hartier, Colbert, Knopp, Travers, and Blankard were disabled, on the side of the English there was Alton wounded, Barn wounded, Delancey killed, Van Meeren killed, Omteda killed, the whole of Wellington's staff decimated, and England had the worst of it in that bloody scale. The second regiment of foot guards had lost five lieutenant colonels, four captains, and three ensigns. The first battalion of the 30th Infantry had lost 24 officers and 1,200 soldiers. The 79th Highlanders had lost 24 officers wounded, 18 officers killed, 450 soldiers killed. The Hanoverian Hussars of Cumberland, a whole regiment with Colonel Hack at its head, who was destined to be tried later on and cashiered, had turned bridle in the presence of the fray and had fled to the forest of Soigne, sowing defeat all the way to Brussels. The transports, ammunition wagons, the baggage wagons, the wagons filled with wounded, on perceiving that the French were gaining ground and approaching the forest, rushed headlong thither. The Dutch, mowed down by the French cavalry, cried, Alarm! From there Cossu to Gruntendale, for a distance of nearly two leagues in the direction of Brussels, according to the testimony of eyewitnesses who are still alive. The roads were encumbered with fugitives. This panic was such that it attacked the Prince de Conde at Mechlin, and Louis the Eighteenth at Ghent. With the exception of the feeble reserve echelon behind the ambulance established at the farm of Mont-Saint-Jean, and of Vivian's and Vandeleur's brigades, which flanked the left wing, Wellington had no cavalry left. A number of batteries lay unhorsed. These facts are attested by Siborne, and Pringle, exaggerating the disaster, goes so far as to say that the Anglo-Dutch army was reduced to 34,000 men. The Iron Duke remained calm, but his lips blanched. Vincent, the Austrian commissioner, Alava, the Spanish commissioner, who were present at the battle in the English staff, thought the Duke lost. At five o'clock Wellington drew out his watch, and he was heard to murmur these sinister words, Blücher or night? 
It was at about that moment that a distant line of bayonets gleamed on the heights in the direction of Frischemont. Here comes the change of face in this giant drama. End of Book One, Chapter Ten